Well, good morning again. This morning we're going to be wrapping up our uh, series that we've been calling No Comfort Zone. We'll be in the Old Testament prophet of Amos, chapter 5. It's printed for you on page, what page? 11 in your bulletin. If you'd like to turn there, we'll be referring to that throughout the service. Okay, my name is Sean. I'm the lead pastor here at Sycamore. And I'm glad to have you with us this morning. So we've been walking as a church through this series where we've kind of been examining the comfort zones that we in church world can fall into and seeing how those comfort zones can sometimes be detrimental to a life of faithfulness and to living a life that worships our Heavenly Father in all we say and all we do. And so today, our final one, in, in deference to that old hymn, we're saying our final comfort zone is saying no to that old-time religion. And before you throw something at me, I like the hymn. Let me make my case. So I've done a lot of marriage counseling in my, you know, over 20 years of being ordained. And, you know, there's, there's an occasional addictive behavior problem. There, there's an occasional abusive situation. But mostly, overwhelmingly, people come to talk to a pastor because there has just been a long, drawn-out period of comfort, of familiarity that has set in. And this has led to emotional distance, even apathy. The couple is basically roommates instead of romantic friends. And that's the people of God in the time of the prophet Amos. The idea of God being married to his people is not just a New Testament idea with the bride of Christ. It's all over the Old Testament that God is in this special covenantal relationship with his people. The closest cognate that we have is marriage. And we'll see here in Amos that they have become roommates. And God's not particularly happy about it. In Amos' day, the people bragged about being God's special people. And in that comfort, they completely ignored God's instructions for doing life. They rested in the fact that God chose us, we're His, so we can do whatever we want. We don't have to follow these instructions. So the way Israel treated her poor, her widows, her disenfranchised was no different than the surrounding nations who did not know God. Israel had raucous, vibrant worship and celebrations, but outside of their official religious activities, the relationship they had with God made no difference. They were roommates rather than intimates. And we Christians do the same thing, don't we? And so as we wrap up our series of getting out of our comfort zones, here is the biggest comfort zone. It's living our life in a pagan dualism that separates the life of faith from life in the real world. And so instead of this radical, powerful, uncommon gospel that we see throughout the New Testament especially, we often end up demonstrating to a looking culture and world a comfortable, powerless, common religion. So with that introduction in mind, would you please rise, if you are able, for the reading of God's Word as we look together at Amos chapter 5, verses 14 through 15, then jumping down to verses 21 through 25. This is God's Word. <clears throat> Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. 
And then skipping down to verse 21. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Let's pray together. A gracious God and heavenly Father, it almost feels weird to call you gracious after reading that. Lord, this is harsh. This is a harsh text. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to see the truth of who you really are, not who we want you to be. We pray, Lord, that you would show us how you intend for us to reflect the grace that you work in us. We pray, Father, you would open this text up to us. Show us truth for our growth, for our transformation. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So our theme this morning is this. God delights in the fruit of his kids, not the ceremony of the church. And we see this right away. We're going to kind of jump around this text, not necessarily go in order. Starting in verses 21 through 23, we see this right away in Sunday fervency. Okay, This text speaks to those who are already part of God's family, those who have already confessed their faith in Christ. This is really talking to you. So non-Christians here today or visitors, maybe your parents made you come, you get to hear God critiquing his own people here. So, And it starts off harsh. I mean, verse 21, God himself says, I hate I despise. I actually heard a couple groans as I was reading that out loud a second ago. It's shocking, isn't it? God says, your religious feasts, your festivals, I hate those things. These are the things that God told them to do. God says he hates them. And and as he keeps talking, it doesn't get any better. I mean, look down at the ESV version there in your bulletin. Look at the verbs there in verses 21 through 23. God says he takes no delight he will not accept, he will not look upon, he will, he will not take away their sins, he will not listen. These are not happy verses. Now I want to make sure we get this. Let's all look together at the kids' translation, the kids' version of 21 through 23. I believe it's up for you in the slides. It's also printed for you on page 11. Here's how we put it for the kids. God says, I really hate your church parties and your worship services do not make me happy. Even though you serve in the nursery, give money, and teach Sunday school, I am not pleased. In fact, I don't pay attention when you go on a mission trip or to small group. Can you just stop with the noise of all your Sunday morning songs? I'm not listening to the piano, guitar, or organ. Well, boys and girls and students, clearly God is not happy, is he? Here's what's going on, in case you Young people, here's how you can, maybe you can understand this. They've given God Father's Day cards. They threw him big birthday parties. They got him all sorts of little gifts. They sung happy birthday to him, but they just would never do their chores. <laughs> there you go. See, at this point, religious people are confused, perhaps even offended. 
They did what God said, right? God said, do all these things in worship. They've done the stuff. How can he not be pleased? I mean, isn't it supposed to be, I insert the thing and you give me the stuff, right? Or maybe we can approach it a different way. We can easily dismiss this text. Well, they really didn't have their hearts in it. It was just an empty ritual to them. They weren't sophisticated like we modern people. Because we modern people, for the first time in human history, the objective reality of what you do doesn't matter. It's only if your subjective feelings confirm it. And if your subjective feelings don't, you're not doing it with your heart, it's not real. It doesn't count. You know, whereas a previous generation would talk about duty, you know, doing it regardless of how you feel. What? It has to be authentic. That's what it is. It wasn't authentic. See, but the text doesn't support that. These various religious feasts, these sacrifices, these offerings, they were very expensive. If they were empty rituals, if their hearts were in it, their wallets were, their time was. And then their songs in verse 23, and that sounds fervent to me when God calls it noise, stop. I mean, he responds like a cranky neighbor, right? Turn that noise off. There seems to be a sacrificial fervency here. So God rejects it then for another reason. And the text itself gives us some hints. He goes through all these different rituals and sacrifices, but notice there's no mention of a sin offering here, a major part of worship at that time. Their worship was enthusiastic. It had lots of celebrations. It had lots of music. But it seems that they had lost a sense of the utter holiness of God and their utter sinfulness before him and how much they needed him to bridge that gap with a sin offering. See, without that recognition, what happens is we religious people just assume that God wants our fervency. He wants our enthusiasm, and then he'll be pleased. And then a passage like Amos 5 comes along, and we read that God looks at all that Sunday morning stuff, and he says, I hate it. I despise it. Now, it's going to get better in a second, but we've got to get there first, okay? Many of us in church world, we need to take this to heart. We very often confuse activity for depth. We believe in Jesus, but we very often rest in our religious activity, don't we? We serve in the nursery, we go to Sunday school, we live a good life, we give money, we attend more than we don't, we try to be good. And if that's you, you need to take verse 21 to 23 to heart. God doesn't care about our religious activities or efforts. And don't you get how beautiful that is? I bet the young people here get it before the adults get it. God doesn't want you jumping through hoops to impress him. He doesn't want you posturing. He isn't the aloof bureaucrat enforcing mindless regulations. He's not the HR director who wants to talk to you about your TPS reports. God doesn't want his people to fake it. The creator invites, he appreciates sincerity of all the people in our life that we feel the pressure to try to impress and perform for. The creator saw God says, don't perform for me. I hate that. How beautiful and gracious is that? I mean, especially if you value authenticity, God does too. See, Amos 5 shows us there's something missing. Their their fervent, costly, earnest worship and activities aren't enough. There's something else that has to be there with their church life, their worship life. And that something else, according to Amos, takes place on the other days of the week. So in addition to Sunday fervency, we have to look at weekday faithfulness, verses 24 and then verses 14 and 15. So the people in Amos' day, they thought that they were giving God his rightful due. 
in worship. So I come, I jump through the hoops in worship, and then I can just get on with the rest of my life. But Amos shows us that God wants Sunday religion to spill over onto the weekdays. This Amos passage is for churchgoers, for Christians to hear. We cannot manipulate God with our religious fervency while we ignore him with the rest of our lives. Or on the other side, we can't feel guilty for how we live throughout the week and then come and offer up to God our fervency so he'll get us off the hook. God will not be manipulated is one of the main messages of Amos 5. So if God hates their worship, what does he want? Well, thankfully, he doesn't leave it to our creativity. He tells us. Let's all look together at verse 24 there. What does he tell, tell us he wants? He says, But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God says he wanted them to flood their community with justice. He wanted righteousness to be a constant refreshment for them. See, in Amos' day, they rolled up into worship and celebration, but then justice and righteousness failed to roll out into the community. God wants justice and righteousness during the week. And Israel wasn't doing it. And that's why he rejected and hated their worship. There was no justice in their community. Some of you are very nervous right now, aren't you? Our new preacher keeps mentioning that word justice. Where's he going? What's he doing? Well, if righteousness and justice are this important, we need to find out what they mean, right? And regardless of our political persuasions, we don't get to tell Scripture what they mean. Scripture gets to tell us what they mean. So let's look at it from Scripture. So justice. What did this mean in the Old Testament in Scripture to an ancient Near Eastern culture, a Hebrew mindset? Justice is the fair use of power to protect the weak. It's honesty towards others. That definition of justice is all over the Old Testament. I love, I read a particular Old Testament scholar who put it this way. I thought this was great. He goes, Old Testament justice is this. With one hand, God is reaching down and he's pulling someone out of the mud. And with the other hand, he's forcibly holding back the other person, stepping on them, trying to squish them back in. Isn't that a great picture of Old Testament justice? I love that. I'm helping you and I'm holding you back. That's beautiful. It's earthy, it's practical, it's person-centered. See, God's justice is about helping the wronged person more than an abstract balancing out of different claims. And that's key, that's a worldview shift. It's about helping the weak person before it's about balancing out claims. See, God's justice is not about fairness. They're not synonyms in biblical justice. God's justice is not the blindfolded lady holding up the scales that you see in courthouses. That's the Greek idea. She's actually a pagan goddess. Her name is Dike. We saw her when Paul was bitten by the serpents about a month ago. Remember that? Dike, blind, doesn't care about people. She's blind. She just balances abstract principles. Dike is not biblical justice. The God of the Bible is not an abstract principle. He's a person, and for him, justice is about persons over principles. He doesn't like it when people are mistreated. And so God says to his worshiping people, in your worshiping community, if it's not concerned for the weak in your community, I hate your worshiping activities. That's hard. That's hard. 
So that's justice. What's righteousness? Righteousness is doing what God says is right, especially towards others. Again, not some abstract principle. It's God himself is righteous. Therefore, when we do what God says, that's righteousness. See, but what happened is God's people had kind of sealed off the religious part of their life. It made no difference throughout the week. So they received all this stuff in worship, but they did not live out that righteousness during the week. And God says, I hate that. And notice how it works in the text. God tells them what to do in verse 24, not what to be. He doesn't say to them, be just. He says, perform justice. He doesn't say, be righteous. He says, perform righteousness. God's justice is practical. It's active. It's personal. It's not abstract and theoretical. See, what I'm getting at is this. is They wanted to do church and be themselves during the week. God says, no, be the church and do justice and righteousness during the week. See, God's grace changes us, especially during worship on the Sabbath. And then during the week, we demonstrate what we have been changed into. We show who we are by doing justice and righteousness, is what Amos is trying to tell us. Now, it's very easy, isn't it, for us to fall into this pattern of regular, enjoyable Sunday participation in Christianity. But that, and then not letting it really make a difference throughout the week. And God says here that everything is not okay if Sunday doesn't affect your weekday faithfulness. Because God delights in the fruit of his kids, not the ceremony of the church. Okay, so what does that look like practically if it is practical? Well, let's look together now at verses 14 and 15. There at the top of page 11, it says this. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. See, again, they knew they were God's special people. They knew they were in this gracious relationship, and they took advantage of that grace. And this is where we need to be careful, because the gospel is all of grace. We don't ever earn our way into God's family, but that gospel grace changes us. And if there is not a lifestyle difference, what the Bible calls fruit, what Jesus called fruit, we don't actually believe the gospel we proclaim. It actually hasn't gotten in us. It actually hasn't changed us. Because Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. And Amos 5 is basically a precursor to that. It tells us that grace experienced is a grace that changes how we live. The people of Amos' day have not been, had not been changed. And we're forced to ask ourselves, have we? The fruit of grace in our life is a powerful, powerful tool. Not just for ourselves, but for our community. As our culture is changing, one of the things that makes evangelism easier is simply just to be at peace. One of the fruits God gives you is peace. To be a person of peace in a world of turmoil gives you gravitas with non-Christian friends. It really does. To care about justice, our culture takes notice. See, when the gospel actually changes us into a people of justice, of righteousness, of peace, the world takes notice of those things. 
But there's even more here. Verse 15 won't let us think of it as only for us. There is a justice and a righteousness for everybody here. That little phrase in verse 15, in the gate, is about to seriously mess up our comfort zones. I know it did me. Okay, so the gate in an ancient Near Eastern town was a combination courthouse, barbershop, and coffee shop. He put those things together. Courthouse, barbershop, coffee shop, where all the official business took place, where all the unofficial networking took place, and where a lot of the personal, non-official deals took place. Everything about the society, legal, social, economic, took place at the gate of the town. It was a euphemism for all of that activity. So when God says establish justice in the gate, it means God cares about the legal, economic, and social justice of communities. Uh Uh-oh. I done stepped in it. I said the word social justice, didn't I? I'm sorry. You know, if you had asked Amos about social justice, he would say, what other kind of justice is there? It's all social. Because he was an ancient Hebrew, not an ancient Greek. He didn't worship DK. The idea of someone blind balancing scales, worshiping fairness, no concept. For him, he's like, well, there's the biblical mindset. God is righteous, therefore his people enact righteousness. God is just, therefore his people enact just. What do you mean? So, What other kind of justice is there besides social justice? See, this whole passage is about not bringing in this Greek pagan dualism that separates the spiritual from the physical, the Sunday morning from the practical, the theoretical from the personal. Old Testament, New Testament doesn't do that. The Bible means shalom. We use that word a lot, peace. It doesn't mean the absence of warfare. It means integrity. It means wholesomeness. When the Bible says peace, it means in a culture, in a world that tries to separate my people, bring it together and have peace. They're integrated wholes. And therefore, Amos says God's people worshiping him for his justice and righteousness live out justice and righteousness in their community. Let's all look together at the kids' translation or kids' version of uh, verse 15. Make sure we all get this. Here's a way to look at this passage. God's people should hate evil and love good. We should work hard to create a just community. See, God calls his people to hate evil and love good by creating a system of real justice in the economic realm, in the legal realm, in the social realm of our community. God wants his people to do justice out there, not merely attend church in here. That sounds hard. That sounds almost liberal. You know, if you're struggling right now, in all seriousness, if you're a little perturbed right now, that's cool. I get it. I was too. Um, Here's what this text forced me to ask as it was beating me up this week. And maybe you need to ask it too. Is social justice hard for me because my idea of justice comes more from the goddess DK than from the God of Scripture? As this text forced me to search my heart, I had to come to the answer of yes. And I had to repent. Because I was a pagan, goddess-worshipping, Greek dualist when I thought about justice. I was not in line with what Scripture reveals justice is. Because God demands that his worshipping community work towards systems of practical justice in the economic and social realms. 
Now, those of you not from a religious background, did, did you know the Bible was this communal, this, can I say it, progressive? See, if you care about social justice, but you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I would challenge you that you should want the Bible to be true. If you feel that the poor should be served or that the weak should be treated justly, the only way to turn those moral feelings into moral obligations on others is to appeal to a moral authority. You don't have one, right? We who claim to follow the Bible, we say the Bible calls us to account on the issue of justice because people are made in God's image and he is the God of justice who demands it. We have a moral authority that puts an obligation on us. Modern Western secularism has no moral authority to appeal to on this issue. Our culture can only assert that we should do this. And the atheist philosopher Nietzsche called that assertion the will to power. In the absence of God, the strong should enforce their will on the others. So win at the ballot box or with an army and then enforce your morality on people. That's all we got. Or the Bible could be true. (laughs) And then there's a God who says people are valuable and so he demands justice in the community. Therefore, we are obligated to work towards it. Now, since I said obligation, are we back to an exhausting religion of performance? Is that what it says? God says you better work real hard and make a good community or I hate your worship. No. God critiques our Sunday fervency. He calls us to weekday faithfulness. But then all of that is always empowered by everyday grace. We see this in verse 25. We'll get there in just a second. So right here in the mean Old Testament is a great picture of God's grace. Remember, God's people are doing energetic, costly worship. God hates it. God rejects it. And instead, he calls on them to demonstrate his character practically to their community during the week. And now God kind of comes on the other side of the issue. They thought God needed their sacrifices, that God was somehow grateful for their sacrifices so that God therefore owed them a good life. He should be happy with their worship, not bug them about the rest of their life. But God comes along, very practical, very relational, and says this in verse 25. He he asks the question, did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? See, it's a simple question, but it just explodes with God's grace. See, back then, the pagan nations, they, they all burned sacrifices on some sort of altar, and it was sent up as smoke. And the theology of the time in all those pagan nations was that somehow that smoke was reconstituted up there into food for the gods. So you were actually feeding the god. That's why you would make a sacrifice with an if-them proposition, right? If you will do this for me, then I will feed you. That was what a sacrifice was in the pagan nations, The God of Scripture is completely different. He is self-sustaining. He doesn't need his people. He doesn't need their sacrifices. So what God is saying in verse 25 to the people of Amos' day, the people who thought they were doing God a favor with their worship, God says, I saved you by grace in Egypt. I took care of you for an entire generation in the desert. I didn't ask for sacrifices then because I didn't need any sacrifices. I saved you and rescued you because I wanted you to be my people. I didn't want your religious efforts. I wanted you. Here's how he put it for the kids. Let's look at the kids' version of verse 25. It says, Do you really think that I took care of you in the desert for all those years because of your awesome church services? 
And, you know, students, that's kind of funny, isn't it? You know there are people in this room who think that God loves them more because they came to church today? That's just as silly, isn't it? You know, coming to church doesn't earn God's love for you. God already loves you, which is why he sent Jesus to rescue you. See, we don't have to earn God's love through our worship. God has loved us through Jesus. God saved us through Jesus by his grace, and that grace changes us if we have embraced it. See, could it be that many of the struggles that we have in our Christian life, that many of the doubts we have, many of the fears we have are the results of our offering up to God our religious activity instead of resting in his love and the gospel? And being changed by that gospel. Oh dear flock. Realize what the people of Amos' day missed. That the daily grace of God is right there for you to tap into. Don't miss it. You know in all of that religious activity. And we said at the very beginning. What was missing was a sin offering. What they missed was acknowledgement that there is a barrier. Between them and God, and that barrier has to be dealt with. And God himself broke that barrier down by rescuing his people. He made them his special family. He gave them his law. He built them a great society to work with and said, follow these rules. And instead, they tried to use his rules and instructions to manipulate him. And perhaps that's what's missing in your life. Have you been going to church for so long because you think that somehow doing that religious stuff, God will owe you a good life? (laughs) See, if our Christian life is stale or boring or unfulfilled, if we find church tedious, maybe God seems distant. Perhaps it's because we too have forgotten the sin offering. God doesn't call us to sing louder. God does not call us to serve more. God does not call us to work harder at being morally pure. God calls us to embrace the sin offering that he provided. God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live for his people, to die for his people, to be the sin offering for his people. And God looks upon that sin offering and is pleased. He then gives you the righteousness that Jesus earned. You don't have to try to earn your righteousness. The righteousness he demands is in Jesus already. The justice he demands has been taken care of by Jesus already. And guess what? That's not fair. DK rejects the gospel. Jesus takes the penalty we earned? Unfair. We get the forgiveness that he earned? Unfair. That's why pagan Romans in the age of the New Testament looked upon Christianity as foolishness. This is why the Apostle Paul, when he was preaching to Greeks, scoffed at him because they saw the gospel as unjust. And this is why in post-Christian America, as paganism is on the rise, more and more people hear the message of the gospel and they scoff. They call it divine child abuse. Google that if you don't believe me. And they say, it's not fair. You are preaching something immoral and unfair. I've been told that. See, if we are living an abstract life of worship on Sunday, but no real practical or personal fruit throughout the week of justice and righteousness, we have no real answer to that objection. 
but when we can point to the authentic difference that Jesus has made Monday through Saturday, that in him we are both motivated and empowered to live out the righteousness he has put in us, to live out the justice that he has satisfied for us, that gets traction today. See, when Jesus gets a hold of us in the gospel, it drives us to fervent worship, not to manipulate God, but because we are overwhelmed at the unfairness of his mercy, that Jesus would die to save wretches like us. And when you get a hold of that gospel, you cannot help but live it out in righteousness and justice because it changes you. So do not hear me saying, try, try, try to live out righteousness or God hates you. No. It's not what Amos is saying. There is only one person who ever walked in perfect justice and perfect righteousness in all his relationships. And the gospel is not try real hard to believe hard enough that you can be like Jesus. The gospel calls to place your faith and trust in Jesus. And in union with him, what is true of him becomes true of you. And in God's eyes, you do walk in perfect righteousness and justice in all your relationships. And because that reality is true, that reality will express itself in your reality. And the more and more we come to know him, the more our community will also start to express righteousness and justice. So let go of that comfortable old-time religion that focuses on what we do and instead place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And grounded in that gospel, you won't be able to help yourself. You will be out in the community messing things up with God's justice and righteousness. In other words, as Jesus would say, repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us enough to critique us. You love us enough to confront us and say, I hate what you're doing. And you also love us enough to not only show us the path, but to empower us on the path and to pick us up and carry us on the path when it's just too hard. Thank you for your unfair grace to us, Father. And Lord, we ask that you would burn this into our hearts, Father. May we take seriously how much our culture tries to separate the the theoretical and the actual. And Father, would you give us the biblical peace that puts those back together that we can walk in integrity, that we could do righteousness and justice to your glory throughout the week. And finally, Lord, we ask that for those who are here today who do not know you, we pray, Father, that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up and proclaimed as crucified for sinners and risen for our salvation, that you would be true to your promise that as Jesus Christ is lifted up, he would draw all people to himself. Would you do that work even now, Lord, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.